0: Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream that I think you're really going to enjoy. Now, we've been working hard on this for a while, but we are finally at our fifth and final episode going through uh, uh, Alexander Dugan's fourth political theory. We've kind of moved through each chapter, each section of the book here, outlining the different theories that Dugan is expounding, his ideas, where he's going with this fourth political theory, what those things mean and today we're going to be taking a look at the last two chapters along with two appendices which i think are interesting they introduce some interesting ideas as well and as always helping me unravel the mystery of dugan is michael millerman michael thanks for coming on good to be with you absolutely so let's just go ahead and jump in on chapter 13 here now chapter 13 is about gender in the fourth political theory and this is another one where i'm a little doubtful on some of the things that uh Dugan asserts i think it gets a little kind of tricky with his language or, or doesn't say uh some some things with his language though he is also again of course looking at Dasein here and this is a concept i'm not as familiar with i haven't read my heidegger yet so there might be uh some insights here that you can unlock for us as we get started Uh, But he talks about early on the gender of politics, how in other political theories, the modern political theories, the dominant gender is male. And for anyone to really participate in politics, to be a person in the political sense, one must be male. And so even in these different political theories that might challenge the supremacy of males in politics or patriarch or these kind of things. The only thing they end up doing is trying to shift women into the male role to make them fully human by making them more male. Do you wanna expand a little bit on kind of his his understanding of uh, the kind of the political gender as male?
1: Sure, so you could say his question is kind of like this. Each political theory has its own understanding of what the genders should be. So he does distinguish at first, between biological sex and sociological gender so we're in the realm here of the political standards ideals or conceptions and he does say that according to the classical liberal conception it's the wealthy urban white rational male and that you could imagine a situation where for example for the sake of equality you don't try to make women more like that standard rather you try to make men more like a female standard for example that would be another way of equalizing the sexes So in his analysis, he shows the typical model of the liberal man and woman, the typical model under the communist uh, ideology, and the typical models under the fascist ideology. And I think if we ask ourselves, you know, doesn't your conception of the classically liberal man, the communist man, and the fascist man, uh, they give you different pictures. And the classically liberal woman and the communist woman, the fascist woman, they would probably also give you different pictures. So that's what he's interested in assessing how the gender... Roles differ in those different models, and obviously, because he's rejecting all three of them, he has to think about what an alternative might look like.
0: Right, and so in the kind of the liberal uh, sense, he says that liberalism accepts accepts kind of the urban white male as the the core uh, political actor. In the Marxism, it attempts to kind of destroy this idea of gender, but ends up failing in practice. And then in fascism it actually exalts the the white male the urban white male beyond a uh the just the actor to kind of the ideal
1: yeah he says the third political theory it intensifies some of those attributes Mm -hmm. so no longer just the white male but the nordic white male no longer just rationality but hyper rationality super rationality or the image of the superman not just a man of action but the man of the will to power so that kind of uh carries forward some of the tendencies of of the liberal model but just sort of to the to a higher degree or to a more intense extent and one place to look for some of these uh figures you know would be in like propaganda posters you know you could consider soviet propaganda posters or communist propaganda posters and you'll see there that even though there's some attempt to undermine the classically liberal roles still you have this sort of uh, hardworking soldier-like masculine figure. And in some cases, the women presented with the same sort of features. So he has, he's looking towards all of that. And one helpful thing I want to mention on the communist side of the equation, this I always found was very uh, profound and insightful. So Leo Strauss, and by the way, my view is when we're studying Dugan, it's helpful, as you know, from our previous conversations, in my view and your view, any support we can get from other thinkers besides Dugan in understanding what he's saying, is uh is only to our benefit so strauss one time was lecturing on marx and he said that in marx the source of the division of labor so the division of labor is an obstacle to a social equality and the source of the division of labor is the division into the sexes or the you know basically the division between men and women so if you want to overcome the division of labor you have to overcome the division between the sexes which already tells you that in marxist ideology uh, broadly speaking there's a kind of orientation towards overcoming that bifurcation and towards overcoming the firmly rooted roles of men and women which would be very different from the fascist or the liberal models so yes he also says you know fascism has introduced uh, into post-liberal or post-modern interpretations of gender some like bdsm elements and so on um and in all of this discussion you know i think there was an article that came out some years ago called alexander dugan queer theorist question mark because people read this chapter and they were like what exactly is going on he wants to overcome he apparently wants to overcome The classical gender divisions whether they're liberal communist or fascist and his proposed solutions which we'll talk about in a minute are are so suggestive and elusive that people were able to wonder all kinds of things about the meaning of this uh of this chapter but for sure you know the idea that you're going to be the white rational european male of property who's you know that sort of who cuts that figure for dugan that is just too liberal in the classical sense too modern too outdated and no longer defensible, no longer feasible, no longer desirable. But so too the uh, communist and fascist alternatives.
0: Yeah, I can definitely understand looking at this, you know, chapter how it can easily be read that way. I mean, he he starts out by immediately, like you said, separating biological sex and gender talking about how uh, you know, these gender roles are the, you know, only understood as valuable in a, that the man is the actor here. It, it's, it's, you know, like you said, later on, we'll get to his, some of his solutions that also kind of talk about destroying some of these distinctions. And it does in many ways sound like some aspects of modern gender theory if you're not looking very closely at them. So, uh, you know, that context is, is certainly very important as we kind of move forward here. Yeah. So um, just
1: one, well, quickly, I want to say one, mm-hmm. one part of this argument, which we saw earlier versions of, and in the chapters, we're still going to discuss, you see other versions of it. It's very clear that whenever he looks at post-modernity with its uh, its unique and specific characteristics, which he despises, and you know, I'll leave it to uh, your viewers and listeners to decide whether they also despise it. There's always the option of a return to the modern like take one step back you know things are getting so crazy in post can't we just take one step back can't we go back to the good old days of the 80s and 90s or of the you know Washington consensus or some, some can't we just just take one step back and it's never Dugan's view and we have to wonder whether there's you know whether he has any good reasons behind this because obviously there are people today who do still prefer the one step back approach but Dugan's view is that no you know you had the march there's a logic inherent in this movement. And the step from modernity to postmodernity, it brought us to some sort of abyss or precipice, but there's no, there's no turning back. There's somehow only going through, but you can go through in different ways. You can go through in the way of total dark uh, night of the soul of post-modern dissolution, or you can go to some sort of other strange alternative, Dasein, the radical subject, Heidegger's other beginning, but you definitely can't just roll back the clock.
0: So a very interesting phrase here that I think a lot of people will probably uh, raise an eyebrow at when they read this is he has a, a sentence that says madness is part of the gender arsenal of the fourth political theory. What does he mean by that? Okay, so this is a very
1: good uh, point and observation about the different ways you can go when you're beyond the modern models. I'm going to say something about both about madness, but also about the sexes and also about this whole picture, because they're all related in a way. So Dugan does not mean we should all be completely insane, crazy, like on the street corner, you know, attacking people just randomly out of the blue. That kind of deranged mental illness, the kind of insanity that follows to anticipate the collapse of order, you know, or a mind that has sort of become degenerated and uh, decayed and crazy in that sense. That's not what he's talking about but there's a kind of madness that is like socrates uh, once said you know the greatest gift of the gods there's a kind of madness which is a divine inspiration which goes above mere human rationality or just above sort of mundane calculative concerns about how what we need to do to stay efficient and uh, well cared for and alive there's a kind of madness that is Dionys- dionysian in the full beautiful poetic sense of the word and that is what he has in mind you know mere rationality has cut us off from the roots of our deeper humanity but somehow the madness that is Dionysian in the proper sense and not just um like the, the, uh, New York City uh public uh transit madness is the is the kind of true gen, truly genuine deep human uh, and divine madness so now on the Dionysian point this is also very important it's an idea he develops elsewhere so I only want to just suggest something about it here Dugan says, you can imagine three fundamental ways of interpreting the world. The, what she calls the Apollonian, the Dionysian, and the Sibelian. Sibylle means the great mother. Sibylle is sort of, there's a whole other story about Sibylle, but Apollonian, Dionysian, and Sibelian. He says each of these three different ways of interpreting the world, they have their own construction of gender. So for example, in the Apollonian model, the woman has power and wisdom, kind of like Athena, athena is a version of a goddess under the logos of apollo you know she has the characteristics of penetrating wisdom and power but in the dionysian world gender is much more fluid and liminal and the roles between the male and the female uh, androgynous figure are much differently constituted and finally in the logos of the great mother or in this third way of seeing the world uh men become women by way of castration primarily so in later books that's how he interprets our world. Our, our world is a world in which the men are being castrated and becoming uh, swallowed by the great the dark uh, the black logos of the great mother. So all of this is to say for him the and there are also these different kinds of madness because Apollo take Apollo as an image of rationality. so as you go up and up and up the chain of rationality as eventually you have this like beatific vision you know or you have this ecstatic moment. And that ecstasy is for him a kind of madness. You know, it's one step beyond our usual limits. So you get a sort of complicated model, much more complicated than just, you know, man and woman. Well, we're talking about Apollonian, Dionysian, Sibelian, but that's sort of what he means. Uh, One other thing here too, because in the chapter, he he admits that he's saying things that are very uh, hard to understand. He, he says, for example, that he's explaining one unknown through another unknown. When he says that gender in the fourth political theory is the same as sex in Dasein, that is, we have explained one unknown through another unknown. So he's changing the words, but they remain a puzzle. So one way I think that it's helpful just to like begin to grasp what that might mean. So biologically, let's say it's very straightforward, okay, with 99.9% of the time, man and woman, and sociologically also ninety-nine. percent 0.9 percent of the time. Let's say it's pretty straightforward, but then you have a question: What if you believe man is primarily characterized not by his sexual organs and so on, but by his soul or by his intellect? And then you say, okay, are souls gendered? Well, now it's slightly more complicated. You know, it's very clear somehow that bodies are gendered. You know that, like your biological existence has a, has a sexual uh, identity. That's sort of you know straightforward. But if you believe that you're a spirit in a body, is your spirit also gendered in the same way? Like people don't typically think that the the soul has sexual uh, genitalia. So how do you start to think about the sexuality of the soul or the sexuality of the spirit? In this case, that's like a hint to why for Dugan, the question of the sexuality of Dasein can also be open or strange. Because we have the whole problem of how does our body, bodily biological self, interact with this other transcendent or spiritual dimension of ourselves so that's sort of what he's trying to puzzle out
0: yeah to, and you know i'll say this uh you know forgive me uh for, for doing this it does sound a little gnostic right but <laughs> in in this way that we're that we need to separate that these things aren't an interplay and instead they need to be separated and, and understood uh with without context to each other but, yeah so uh, again
1: I only I only suggest about the soul as a like so that you could get the sense of the problem or the question because in Heidegger's philosophy there's not I mean the body somehow or the bodily self is under theorized in a way in Heidegger but he's more interested in our relationship to being but there's a all I meant to point to was that th- that kind of question so mm-hmm. not necessarily that we are body soul and spirit and we have to figure out where does our you know masculinity or femininity come from but that If you consider the human being from some transcendental perspective or existential perspective like Heidegger does, then it just becomes more complicated than if you're merely looking at, you know, let's say, uh, the other telling signs of uh, sexuality and gender identity.
0: I gotcha. So, um, uh, or yeah, I also wanted to say really quickly, it's interesting that he brings this example up because he often, uh, he references Deleuze more than you would expect uh, in this. Most people don't put a lot of, uh, tie a lot of postmodernism to Deleuze, and of course Deleuze, famous for a number of things, but particularly, you know, the fact that schizophrenia is, <laughs> it was what frees you from capitalism. Uh, keeps you you know It might make you the, the most uh, able to kind of uh, escape these things. So it's interesting that he does introduce m- madness here as kind of a factor, and he is bringing Deleuze into this Very, very often he does talk about the body of organ uh, without uh, organs. He does talk about the desiring um, uh, machine, but he also rejects many of the things that uh, Deleuze kind of uh, comes to an end with. So he's pulling from some of this uh, Marxist theory, he's pulling from uh, some of this postmodernism, but he's not embracing uh, all aspects of it here.
1: Uh, That's right. Because any serious analyst of postmodernity or any serious postmodern thinker is saying something deeply true to some extent and the question for dugan is always to what extent and how can we borrow profitably from their ideas another one is the fold but he has other thing other things in this chapter he says which again are mysterious you know and you sort of have to puzzle through uh, how literally he means them what exactly he means to say by them so he says that the subject of the fourth political theory is a non-adult male you know so there's a reference there to the child uh, to immaturity to the uh, to the notion of play and playfulness, because there's a there's a person related to Heidegger who wrote on the world as play. So there there's always like what he says on the surface, and then this all of the implied layers, you know, that have reference to these other philosophers, and then sometimes we're sort of left just having to try to see is this totally bogus, is this halfway bogus, or is this you know not bogus at all? Uh, this chapter leaves a lot of open questions, obviously, but I would say that. He's right. Gender does shift under these different ideologies. The gender models and roles and the the ideal man and woman, the ideal type changes with the ideology. Okay, that seems fair enough to say. And so if you're trying to get outside of the ideologies, you're left with the question, what would be the new ideal type? And only other thing I want to add uh, on this chapter that I think it's kind of clearer here than it is elsewhere, that not everybody who criticizes post-modernity and who criticizes the current state of post-liberalism goes into all of this existentialist uh heideggerian side of things so take for example again my other key point of reference leo strauss his alternative was to have recourse to the notion of nature human nature you know human the ideologies may tell you something different but the underlying human nature doesn't change all that changes is the way that the ideologies force you to interpret it or the way they lie about it or the way they try to push another version of it on you but you can expel nature with a pitchfork and nevertheless it returns but in dugan that idea of a constant foundational nature is sort of absent and it's absent in a way that it is from heidegger as well because the history of being and all of these other deep and strange philosophical questions dominate over top of the idea of a stable nature so all of the weirdness around this discussion i think partly reflects that difference as well because you could say well look the ancient greek polis it was neither liberal nor fascist nor communist and it had its own version of men and women maybe there's a constant that lies underneath all of those changes dugan doesn't quite consider that here
0: yep So, uh, as you've hinted at a number of times here, of course, he goes into Dasein once again. And, uh, here he talks about Dasein as kind of being androgynous and that it allows us to kind of move beyond the gender binary. Again, language that I think a lot of people will immediately say, okay, so here we go. You know, the, (laughs) the, uh, um, gender theory, uh, hitting hard, but he kind of explains that, uh, there's, there's something to be reached when we're no longer looking at the opposites of these two, when we're no longer in the tension of these two, but instead the unity of, uh, of those two genders. Could you go a little more into that?
1: Yeah, here's how I would put it. So in one of our previous discussions in one of the previous chapters, he looked at the question of the, of another binary of another split theory and practice, mm-hmm. you know, and he tried to understand, okay, how are we going to make fourth political theory practical? And if you remember, he said postmodernity. Overcomes that division, but it overcomes it by blurring it horizontally. The fourth political theory overcomes that division by digging to the root, the common root. And in some sense, I think a similar logic applies to his analysis of gender. So postmodernity may start to blur the gender boundaries, but it does so sort of horizontally. I like to think this is just, I, I, I'm i sure other people have written about this, but I find it helpful that like postmodernity has closed off the possibilities of self-transcendence. And instead the transcendence is like you become sexually trans, you know, you move horizontally from one thing to another, or you're in that sort of murky, uh, horizontal mixed ground. But Dugan says, yes, we need to overcome the binary. At least we need to think about what it would mean to overcome it. But we have to do that by going not just in the middle and not just, you know, adding them together so that it's a big Um, you know mix of things that were already there in the first place but you need to try to penetrate to the origin of the division and obviously he doesn't mean the biological origin of the division he really is always primarily concerned with the conceptual or the existential dimension of this split so it's it is interesting that when heidegger analyzes the nature of human existence he doesn't talk about the you know it's almost like it applies equally to men and women in his analysis or presentation it's not linked to or indexed to being a man or being a woman and therefore it sort of is that kind of open question uh but even yeah so it's that it's always that idea of can we go deeper down than the division and then come back up instead of some sort of mutual, instead of some sort of mechanical uh operation of adding them or combining
0: them gotcha and then he goes ahead and talks about kind of how there are three different approaches to kind of uh, attempting to understand this uh, problem of political gender Uh, He talks about how postmodernism is a maximization of kind of the liberal man. It's kind of taking it to its extremes. He looks at Marxism and what he describes as uh, the sexless cyborg. And then he talks about how conservatism attempts to basically kind of reassert masculinity, bring us back to uh, continuing modernity by reasserting that classical understanding of uh, masculinity. Yeah,
1: that's right. I mean, those are some of the options we have. Probably all three of them are operating simultaneously. Uh, sexless cyborgs—that's not so far-fetched, you know. AI and robot technologies are getting to be pretty good, and uh, these sex chatbots and so on, from what I see on the Twitter timeline. So that kind of like you know, androgynous sex with robots or whatever—it's probably maybe people are already doing it uh, yeah. as we speak, for, for all I know. So these are all these are all potentialities, and uh, it's very important for for him that. The conservative response, as he puts it, when conservative forces stand up for this archetype, demand the return of masculinity, uh, they thereby only try to continue modernity through these gender reconstructions. The position seems hopeless. And here again, the fourth political theory, in our opinion, goes forward. So uh, it's, I would say this, what's good about this chapter and what's good about Dugan's position here, whether we buy into part of it or you know, all of it or none of it, is that at least it's clearly carving something out. You know the reassertion of traditional masculinity or of like re like 80s 90s or 50s 60s masculinity or whatever right it's carving out a clear position that and he is saying no that's not viable that's not gonna we just you can't roll with that you know uh there's more there's more happening than meets the eye and we can't respond to it just like that
0: yeah he he is not ignoring this issue which i think a lot of people would would just like it to go away so yeah and if is- you consider you know the
1: russian version of the book was written in 2009 if i'm if i'm not mistaken i'm pretty sure that i'm not uh and he mentions here you know all of the tra- uh, transgenderism and all these things that maybe then were less uh, less a matter of everyday conversation you know now we're inundated with these themes and topics and for him they were pretty self-evident trends even then which i think says something about how he's analyzing postmodernity.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Whenever somebody makes a, at least a, a solidly uh, predictive uh, statement, you want to make sure you understand kind of some of the logic behind it. There's probably some some value to it. All right. So uh, our next chapter is 14. And this is the final official chapter of the book. Uh, it's against the postmodern world. Now, in a lot of ways, I felt like this is pretty much kind of a restated chapter uh, where mm-hmm. we're going over a lot of the ideas and summing them up. I'm, there, I mean, There's still some I think important things did hit here, but he is tying up some of those loose threads. So it's called against the postmodern world. And the very first thing he kind of steps back into again is unipolarity versus multipolarity. And he specifically uh, says a line here, uh, which is very bombastic, uh, which people will want to hear. Uh, America is the center of the kingdom of the Antichrist uh so it's not not pulling too many punches here but uh i guess we can we can kind of touch again on his understanding of polar, uh, multi-polarity versus unipolarity and how the only way through if you're gonna the only way out is through then the american empire kind of as it stands the global american empire uh can't continue in its current form
1: yeah i think you could say for him the america under the rule of the democratic party is the kingdom of the antichrist because he did support trump and in this other book that he put out not too long ago the great reset versus the great reawakening uh or the other way around he says that trump threw a wrench into the whole system of the of unipolarity and of the great reset and of the forces of the destruction of the essence of the human being and so on so he's not against everything happening in the united states he's against what the united states is when it is run by clinton biden the democratic party and so on that's a big part of it but it's also uh worth noting in my opinion uh, restating because we said something like it earlier that even within america and within the west there are defenders of the pre-modern west or let's say of you know of the genuine true uh, roots of uh, american identity and it's really this hostile takeover of the west and the hostile takeover of america that in my view anyway he's primarily against so anybody who has that spirit of unipolarity in them would be representing the bad guys from his point of view but anybody who has the spirit of tradition in them whether they're inside america or outside of it would be part of the good guys and therefore he talks about the anti-globalist and anti-imperialist front and this kind of um alliance among the different religions among the different factions among the different states and civilizations and peoples because there's a common enemy in his view the common enemy unipolarity and its uh and its acolytes so for what it's worth i mean i think there are parts uh, of this chapter of this particular part of the chapter that are important where he says muslims shouldn't fight christians christians shouldn't fight jews you know don't make this a religious holy war because in fact when you defend tradition you're defending somehow the right of each of those other players to have its place in the world so the common enemy is the one who wants to wipe out the possibility of a tradition uh, custom a faith and so on so that that and some other things are new but yeah uh i mean he does say those things against the united states but in my opinion they apply with those caveats
0: yeah he, he does as he did previously when he used this kind of language does specifically say there are people inside of the united states who stand against this they will be essential to kind of opposing this and so he does give that caveat uh to be fair and yeah it does it does kind of uh like you said he frames this as you need to have all people of tradition all people who would oppose kind of this current ruling order to stop squabbling and move together together as one you, you do kind of get the feeling of the Lawrence of Arabia where all the tribes need to be united to, to, you know, fight against the, the force that would otherwise kind of collapse their, their different traditions, but they seem unable to actually, uh, you know, work together. And so they are divided and destroyed individually. Uh, And so uh, you you do get that feeling from him here.
1: I will say, you know i i started working on dugan in 2011 that's when i began translating this book and since then i've had a lot of students and professors and people you know talk to me about dugan and his ideas and yeah i do get the sense because some of them have been religious uh, jews some of them have been muslims some of them have been christians you know some of them are traditionalists of another sort or stripe some of them just are american patriots who don't like what's happening with the uh, current american regime and so on and everybody has found something valuable in his analysis even if they don't share it all the way so you get you do i i think reading him you do get the sense he's trying to make sure that he says those things that unite for the most part the right groups against the wrong groups the wrong group being again the party of unipolarity and so on um without at least now i don't say this is true of everything he's ever written you know but without trying to introduce all kinds of new divisions or new schisms or new factions because the whole idea if you remember from earlier in the book he says it's not it's not just enough to have a great ideology and it's not just enough to have a lot of political power because if you have a strong state with no great idea or a great idea with no power behind it you're not actually going to be able effectively to oppose unipolarity so part of his part of his rhetoric or part of his art of writing you know part of the way that he presents his ideas is designed to be able to fashion a consensus among groups that may otherwise not uh, have one um so maybe you know how much of that is strategic rhetorical viable and so on but it's for sure it's a part of his project.
0: Yeah, I think that is one of the more interesting parts of of this book for me because many people are you know willing to say I'm I'm against globalism, I'm I'm against kind of this new world order, I'm against this un- attempt to unify and liquefy nations into kind of this this one uh global hegemon. But they don't really think about what that would take and what that would entail. And the fact that he stops to remind people, like, the only thing that's going to – most people ignore the problem of the centralization of power. They just say, I'm against globalism, but they ignore the fact that a unified global power is going to be stronger than whatever divided nationalism they might embrace. And so the fact that he understands that and he says, okay, there is a way to unify these things, there is a way to – kind of form an op- an opposing uh, position where everyone does not have to agree on the same culture, the exact same tradition, the exact same way of life, but does agree that the existence of those, you know, cultural and moral particulars is valuable it is important. I think it's, it's a detail that's too often brushed over by the those that oppose globalism, but don't think critically about what it would actually make uh, would actually take to kind of unify and push back against it
1: yeah absolutely and part parts of it may still strike people as uh unsettling or uncomfortable or uh, unfamiliar because he says you know there should be cooperation between the left and the right you know you could combine the ecologists and the orthodox traditionalists and you know so we have to make it's in this sense it's a big anti-liberal or big anti-modern tent because you may have people on the like he puts it here uh, conscious cooperation of the radical left-wingers and the new right as well as with religious and other anti-modern movements such as the ecologists and green theorists for example so nor, you know normally let's say you might look at the green theorists and think that they're completely whatever right and they may look to the right and think that those people are completely crazy so th- the prejudices have to be put aside and i think a memorable passage from this chapter uh, along with a couple of other things that are worth discussing where he says that these little group divisions you know the hostility of uh, one group to another group Uh, these prejudices are the instruments in the hands of liberals and globalists with which they keep their enemies divided so we should strongly reject anti-communism as well as anti-fascism both of them are counter-revolutionary tools in the hands of the global liberal elite very interesting because on one hand he's rejected communism and fascism so he's Mm. not for communism he's not for fascism but he's also not for anti-communism and he's not for anti-fascism because those movements can be exploited by the uh, central power for the sake of opposing any possible genuine alternative, which is just uh, also intriguing. And I don't think you see that kind of argument uh, necessarily every time you read a criticism of contemporary uh, postmodernism.
0: No, I thought that was very interesting because, uh, for instance, Paul Gottfried has written a whole book about how the American uh, kind of global order is inherently a a program of denazification, anti-fascist, and it's uh, you know, in its construction and that it kind of blinds it to kind of all of its other problems or all, all the, the ways that anything might be opposed to it. So I, I do think that's interesting that he picked up on that strain uh, of thought there. Uh, but I also wanted to point out that he encourages uh, the opposition here to be anti-capitalist, anti-liberal, anti-cosmopolitan and anti-individualist. Uh, Again, a lot of people might re uh, uh, kind of pull back from any one of those assertions, but it is obvious that these are elements that are essential to kind of the current world order. And so if you're looking at something that's beyond it, you are probably going to have to oppose all of these things in at least some way.
1: Yeah, so I haven't read it, but one of his recent books is called Anti-Capitalism from the Right so it's cl- clearly a part of his attack on um, the modern world isn't it you know is a critical assessment of capitalism that he can borrow in part from the leftist tradition but reinterpret it from a traditionalist let's say or right-wing perspective uh, obviously people who are all in on the social and political virtues of capitalism won't like that but even so you learn from people who have criticized your position and therefore it's worth considering uh, one thing uh, one thing i want to say about an earlier page in this chapter just because I think it's helpful. So way back near the beginning of the book, when he started talking about the, uh, towards the fourth political theory, the subject of the fourth political theory, and he said, it's going to reject the individual, the class, the race, and the state, it's going to posit something else. Uh, One thing he said then was, you know, as we look for possible key players of the fourth political theory ultimately hits upon Dasein but as we look at it we can see like combinations so for example maybe you you know combine like national Bolshevism you've somehow you've combined the uh, class concern of communism with the ethnic or state concern of fascism or something like that so some people who have written about this book are like yeah all Dugan's trying to do is to combine the other political theories but here he says in my opinion this is important for understanding him he says this idea of a combination uh, i'm not quoting yet i'll be quoting in a second the idea of combining the first second and third political theory he says is only the first step the mechanical addition of deeply revised versions of the anti-liberal ideologies of the past in other words combining some sort of red brown alliance will not give us a final result it's only a first approximation and preliminary approach so it's kind of like just the first mental exercise to get you outside of the usual way of thinking But then, as he puts it, we must go further and make an appeal to tradition and pre-modern sources of inspiration. So you're not going to fight liberalism effectively just by combining nationalism and socialism. Rather, you have to have recourse to Plato, to medieval philosophy, to theology, and to all of these deeper, somehow more serious uh, sources. And therefore, he also puts it, uh, he's not telling us what the theory is and what it's not. It's a kind of invitation and appeal rather than a dogma. So I've always thought that was pretty important as well, both because he's saying there's this preliminary step like an operation to get us warmed up then there's a much bigger task and everybody's invited to participate in that task to develop it to think it through you know and what he's really doing is just setting some initial parameters
0: yeah that, that covers most of the rest of what i was going to say there i think uh, he yeah he uh, touches once again on the synthesis of communism and fascism talking about how you need to discard the the materialism of communism, you need to discard the race obsession of fascism, and you know, need to kind of uh, take what what else is still left between those two. But as you said, that, you know, he t- then talks a lot about national Bolshe- Bolshevism there. Um, I don't know if you want to touch on any more of that. We, we, we mentioned national Bolshevism before and why that might be important to him. I don't think we went into a lot of detail of what it is and kind of how that might connect to the fourth political theory.
1: Yeah, so I'll just say uh, one thing about national Bolshevism, which is Dugan had been involved with this ideological experiment uh, earlier in his career, and it had a political dimension because he was one of the co-founders of the National Bolshevik Party. There's an essay online of his you can find called The Metaphysics of National Bolshevism, which is interesting and worth reading. And uh, what I really like about that essay, uh, as a clear conceptual distinction, he says, you know, there's this book by Karl Popper, The Open Society and Its Enemies so he says i'm going to define national bolshevism as the enemies of the open society so on one hand you have uh, okay and that's that's how he defines it at first in that essay so that gives you some sense of where he was going with it before the concept developed further and then i have to say uh there are all of these minor details you know that point to other arguments in dugan's work and there's a very important one at the end of this chapter so remember he's against unipolarity geopolitically ideologically and spiritually He defends multipolarity, but he makes this point at the end. He says, um, multipolarity in all senses can be helpful. And quoting, the important concept of nous, intellect, developed by the Greek philosopher Plotinus, corresponds to our ideal. The intellect is one and multiple at the same time because it has multiple differences in itself. And then he says, the future world should be noetic in some way. Now, I'm going to make one little comment about this. So he's combined multipolarity, which people might normally think of as just geopolitical, with the idea of noose a purely philosophical concept and he has a series of books i think there's 24 of them in total called Noo machia the no part of that is noose and the machia part means like war so wars of noose and it's his philosophical analysis of civilizational multipolarity so here he says it in a paragraph multipolarity must be noetic well what does that mean well he's got 24 volumes on the analysis of civilizational multipolarity based on noose So in my school, I have a course on the introductory volumes just to get people acquainted before he goes into like civilization by civilization analysis. But it's just another kind of Dugan move, you know, multipolarity, everybody gets it. Oh, that means that, you know, BRICS is going to be something and Shanghai Cooperation Organization is going to be something and Saudi Arabia is getting strong. But that doesn't tell you what he means when he says it must be noetic in some way. And that's where the philosophy comes in.
0: See, I thought like the four volumes of society in the mind were a little excessive, but I guess, uh, you know, I should be grateful. I didn't have to go through 24 volumes of, <laughs> of it. All right.
1: Yeah. Um, he, and he said, in one of his interviews, he says these 24 volumes, they should really just serve as like a table of contents for the real work. So, sure, you know, sure. he's, he really wants a rich account of civilizational multipolarity, but you know, 24 volumes is already a lot.
0: It, it feels like a, a decent amount. Yeah. All right. So then we get to our appendices here, and there's two of them. The first one is kind of a sum up of terms that are used in the writing here. He goes through political post-anthropology, political post-humanity, and the post-state, the political soldier in the simulacrum, and the alternative in political post human anthropology, pre-human, and PC here. Uh, Some of these are just, again, restatements of ideas we've already gotten through in the book, but is there any of this that you want to stop and focus on for a minute? Yeah, so I'll say,
1: just like in the case of gender, there was the question, can you return to a standard classical masculine ideal or something like that? So too here, he says, in the postmodern state of affairs, can you just return to the figure of the political soldier someone who's willing to fight and die for his idea that's a modern uh, for in his view anyway you know there were political soldiers but in in our virtual postmodern state it would be like a self-parodying weird simulacrum type thing you know like it's there's no longer a space in the world for genuine political soldier that would be another example of taking a step back so that's why i said in the logic of gender in the logic of the ideologies and here In the logic of the figure of the political man, there's no taking a step back. So I think that's a helpful idea. And then there's some things he says that, again, I don't know, the references to Deleuze for sure, but also where he says, you know, the um, now how fashion, celebrity, glamour, show business, they're inculcating ideas that to attain material prosperity one doesn't need to earn money through work one must instead be recognized by the relevant social set become a member of the ever changing glamour network all of these things i think again trends that he identified there that have uh, continued and gotten even crazier actual work is not necessary it's optional that made me think of all those tiktok videos of like a day in the work of a google employee where they're just sitting around looking pretty or whatever mm-hmm. uh, that's you know the post the post state in a nutshell and then he has other just nice phrases like it's a sort of pirate republic placed in cyberspace or a brazilian carnival uh a hallucinatory game so somehow you know it's all related to the things he said before in this sort of unreal virtual parody confused parody of the earlier states of relative
0: normality but we also just
1: can't return there
0: Right. So uh, the next uh, appendices is an interesting one. I I don't know what the context came in for this, if it was a separate chapter. I know you helped to translate this, so maybe you you know better how this kind of ended up where it did. But it's called The Metaphysics of Chaos.
1: Yeah, so I didn't translate this chapter and I'm not, uh, I wasn't involved with the compilation of the text. So it combined some of the original chapters of Fourth Political Theory with some other ones. But I will say this, chaos is a very important theme for Dugan some people who have skimmed the surface of his uh public profile have said you know there's this star uh the star that's in the middle of the cover right here they're like that's the chaos star and that proves that dugan is a you know satanist because he follows Aleister crowley and he's like chaos you know i've heard you can read all kinds of things about the meaning of that star and so on the chaos star but the the idea of chaos is actually very important in his work not only here in this appendix in his second Heidegger book called Martin Heidegger, The Possibility of Russian Philosophy, he has a whole section on the meaning of a philosophy of chaos. I translated parts of it, and they're available in my book, on my second book, which is called uh, Inside Putin's Brain, The Political Philosophy of Alexander Dugan. Uh, if anybody wants, they can reach out and I'll send a free PDF copy or whatever. You don't have to buy it. But it has excerpts of his philosophy of chaos from that book. Uh, another thing I want to say is there's a very nice, essay of his available online which is he goes over like the original meanings of chaos among in the greek philosophers Empedocles, and so on and there's a lot about this topic that's very 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 important so in this chapter you start to get a sense a sense of it you know not the last word like much of this book is like that suggestive but not the last word but still a lot you know and here the idea this is the crucial idea is that there is not one chaos there are two chaoses there's a chaos that follows the collapse of order, and there's a chaos that precedes, as it were, the birth of order. And that little division, like so many other little divisions in this book, help Dugan to analyze the state of affairs. So if logos or reason or rationality has played itself out to this post rational, schizophrenic, postmodern uh, world, uh, playground or nightmare or carnival depending on how you prefer to see it so it's going into a chaos it's becoming chaotic and that chaos is reflected in all kinds of processes in new technologies and the development of chaos you know the mathematics that's appropriate to the study of chaos but it is all the collapse a collapse of logos collapse of reason dissolution dissipation and somehow destruction but a destruction that's interpreted as progress, as progressive, as better. And Dugan, when he puzzles through philosophically all of these challenges, you know, what, do we need a new philosophy? Or are we just, are we just left with what we have now? What are we going to do? He goes all the way back to the beginning, as it were, and says, what about the original chaos? What about the womb of order? What about that which embraced Logos, but wasn't Logos, you know? And it's again some people might hear that and be like this is totally abstract this is totally useless it doesn't solve any real problems but it doesn't matter because whenever we think about things like rights or the state or authority legitimacy we're always going to be thinking quote-unquote abstractly but in ways that do have a lot of relevance so in the the heidegger book that i mentioned he says when he goes through the philosophy of chaos he's like from this perspective we have to reinterpret the whole meaning of russian history and of world history and so on so absolutely crucial concept and uh not to go on and on but i want to say one more thing which isn't in the chapter but which may help people to think about it the natural opposition is between chaos and order like people who read jordan peterson or whatever else you know may be familiar with that kind of opposition so if the natural i mean in this chapter he talks about chaos and logos but another natural opposition to chaos and order so when we think about international affairs when we think politically, usually we think in terms of order, new world order as you mentioned earlier, a fight for the global order, you know, a multipolar world order. And one of the things that Dugan tries to bring out is that it's not just a new order that's at stake. It's not just the nature of order in the world that's at stake right now. It's also the nature of chaos that's at stake. And chaos is related to the processes around these wars because war is chaotic. So it's a huge theme for him. Uh way beyond this chapter uh, but as i say this chapter is like a, fir- a good first exposure to it
0: yeah i think that hit most of the the notes i had on there is just uh talking about how logos was kind of the end of european philosophy uh, kind of the two chaoses the distinction that you had talked about there that's important that i wanted to hit on um you know logos as the center of a, a number of religions especially christianity and greek thought. um And so, yeah, I think that that pretty much hits everything. Conservatism is kind of the restoration of Logos. That might be interesting to talk about for just a second. I see a lot of people, uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, others, uh, especially on kind of the the non-woke left or the the kind of the uh, classical centrist uh, or classical liberal uh, kind of centrist movement, talking about Logos as a way to kind of revivify uh, the Western tradition and bring things back. Uh, he kind of pre, uh, he, he he predicts this, right? He predicts that this is the route that conservatives will te- uh, take attempting to kind of uh, rehabilitate Logos and bring it back into uh, the kind of the center of the discussion. But every time I hear people talk about this, it's always feels like them trying to do a disembodied rationalist version of Christianity. Uh, it always feels like them trying to find Uh, kind of the remnants of Christian uh, ethos and kind of tie it together in a way that will become acceptable for people who are no longer able to be bound by kind of a religious ideal and I think that might be kind of part of what he's pointing at when he's talking about the, the kind of these attempts will fail and it has to kind of move beyond that but I didn't know if you wanted to expound a little bit on that at all
1: so there would be in my view different ways you could try to return to logos you know, some of them would be a reassertion of a specific kind of rationality. Some of them may be an attempt to restore classical learning. You know, the, let's go back and uh, can't we all just go memorize Dante like we used to or something like that? You know, the classical school model. Others may be a kind of uh, watered down Christianity, you know, or a very unified. So there are all of these possible ways that you could do it. But Dugan, again, following the logic that you can't take a step back unless you go back to the very origin or the very source. That is always the sort of movement of his thought here, and one of the things that uh, I've observed, a lot of the slightly different from the point you made, but I've observed that a lot of let's say conservatives, Republicans, or you know defenders of tradition, anti-postmodern thinkers, they want to go back to uh, let's let's learn Greek again and Latin again, and really let's do this sort of like encyclopedia of the cultural uh, treasures of the Western world. You know, in other words, the whole positive history of logos. But one of the things that Dugan is so adamant about is that in some way the postmoderns are right that you have to go to Nietzsche, you have to go to Heidegger, you have to go to those people who saw the end of Logos, or at least who claimed to have seen the end of it, who claimed to have seen the its total loss of power and legitimacy. And who were able to analyze that process in a lot of detail so it's kind of like again this is the way that i this is the way that i see things i think it maps on somehow german philosophers who especially obviously especially heidegger but not only who looked over the whole process of western philosophy they were read by the left postmoderns and not so much by the conservative rightists and therefore the combination of A desire to go back to the very origin of the whole drama of reason of logos the whole problem of being and non-being in some sense the whole problem of chaos and order to go all the way back to the origin of that problem the conservative republican you know somehow uh, classically oriented right would have to go where it doesn't want to go into german philosophy and uh that's why dugan represents a very unique alternative he's combined that concern with german philosophy um but in a way that is unfamiliar because we t- we tend to see that among the French postmodern leftists, not among the you know Russian postmodern rightists, as it were. But that's you know, that's um, that's a key and crucial problem because even though it would be good, let's say let's say everybody at the table could agree, you know, it would be much better for people to read the Bible and Shakespeare and Plato and Cicero and all of these other uh, great works, you know, like you can get from a St. John's curriculum or something like that. That, that would be much better than if they constantly read some sort of contemporary ideological trash. That's probably true. They would become more cultivated, more cultured. They'd have more points of reference and they would understand the whole heritage and the legacy of the Western world in a way that right now uh, is under attack. That's true. But will they have penetrated to the deepest dimension of the most fundamental problems? that's that remains open. And that's what that's where Dugan and his constant reference to Heidegger is always looking to go. So that's sort of where uh, where matters stand, I would say, uh, with the question of chaos. That's what it represents to him. It represents the, the very source and origin of the tradition.
0: All right. well, we can go ahead and probably wrap up here. Uh, Before we go to the questions of the people uh first is there anything that we you know we've we've gone through five episodes here but is there anything that we didn't get to something that we didn't explore in enough depth or something that we need to touch on again that you can think about
1: No, i think we did a good job uh all credit to you for covering the book uh cover to cover i'll just say for those who are intrigued enough to want to read more there's definitely more to read. So there's the rise of the fourth political theory, which is part two. There are all of these other books that we referred to of Dugan's Ethnos and Society, beginning uh, with Heidegger, my book on him. And this. You know, there's a lot that you can read if you wanna keep studying Dugan, but this was a great place to, uh, to start. And for many people, a great place to finish too, because it does give you a nice round overview, I think, of his major uh, concerns.
0: And let me encourage people. I know, uh, Michael was graciously like, you don't have to buy my book. I'll hand you a copy or whatever, but do buy bu- uh, Michael's book. He's put in the yeoman's work here. Uh, he's given you a masterclass on understanding, uh, this book, uh, throw the man some, some help here. You got to support people who are doing great work. So make sure that you're taking care of those who are, who are putting in the hours like Michael is. Cause I think that's, it's really important. Okay. Uh, but that, that said, uh, Michael, where can people find your work if they want to support you, want to look into what you're doing?
1: So I'm on Twitter, M underscore Millerman. I have a school, millermanschool.com. Some paid courses, some free courses. I'm on YouTube where I put out lectures on Heidegger, Strauss, Dugan, and other figures. And uh, you can find some of my books, my two books on Amazon. And uh, yeah, so just, I'm putting out material on political philosophy and political theory wherever I can. Uh, Millerman School is my main my main site.
0: Excellent. And guys, I've really enjoyed this uh, series. I've gotten really good feedback from this. I'm thinking about doing, you know, uh, streams like this as kind of a regular feature. So if there is a work, if there's a thinker, if somebody that you'd like to have a deep dive in, kind of a multi-part series looking at a particular uh, work, let me know, put those comments down in the description, and I'll take those under advisement as I kind of plan out going forward what we're going to be looking at. Uh, That said, we do have a super chat here. So let me grab it here. Uh, Cripper weirdo here for $5. How do we know this isn't another attempt at enlightened centrism? So, yeah, there's a lot of synthesis here, right? There's a lot of, well, we take a little bit of this and we take a little bit of that and, you know, we we pull it all together. Uh, I think there's a couple obvious answers here. But how do we know that Dugan isn't just pulling a little bit of enlightened centrism, but just kind of uh, to to his geopolitical interests?
1: Well, i would say that one way to think about centrism is a kind of moderation we don't want to go to the extremes you know we sort of want to you don't want to upset the people on the right too much you don't upset the people on the left too much let's find this sort of moderate happy uh middle ground that's not dugan's view he's a much more radical thinker you know one of the biggest criticisms against him i think is how how little moderation matters to him how extreme he is in wanting to go all the way to the beginning or all the way to the end or you know very much against this or against that so um, a, a centrism would be more a matter of playing it safe here this is much more revolutionary it's just not uh, leftist revolutionary it's a different kind of conservative revolutionary thought so I think that would be one way to uh to distinguish it and then also with its interests in mysticism and in madness and in chaos I think that it goes against the grain of what we would normally consider enli- enlightened which is sort of like purely rational uh, and less mystical and less mad and less chaotic
0: yeah, I think that uh, your point of you know normally you you would be trying not to offend anyone and instead Dugan seems to offend everyone, uh, you know is a is probably a sign that he's not just aiming for the broadest audience. So uh, I think that's a that's a safe bet. Also, I noticed a number of people bringing up the the chaos symbol. Yes, guys, I also uh, recognize that symbol from Warhammer 40k. So uh, yeah, that's that's where that's where I knew the chaos symbol from. I knew it immediately. So I, I hear you all right guys i think that's everything once again thank you to michael for coming on did a great job laid it out in a very helpful way i know i learned a ton i got lots of good feedback from other people who learned a lot so excellent that we were able to go through this i think it'll be very helpful again guys just want to remind you you know these are not endorsements of ideas this is not embracing of all of these things We're looking at a thinker because we want to better understand where they're coming from, the different sources they're pulling together, the thought they're exploring. You don't have to embrace all of this stuff or even any of it to still find value in the points that he's bringing forward, the analysis that he's bringing forward. As I pointed out many times, Dugan is often pulling from a lot of different people. A lot of these thoughts aren't new to him, but he's bringing them together in a very interesting way. And there's a lot of value in that. So even if you don't find one thing that Dugan said, uh, particularly helpful remember he's drawing from lots of other thinkers that you can explore as well to kind of better understand those different uh pieces of the uh, puzzle that he's he's pulling together uh as always guys if this is your first time here please make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the channel and if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts make sure you subscribe to the Oren mcintyre show on all your favorite podcast networks thanks for coming by guys and as always we'll talk to you next time